It's hard to believe that Jesus found the world to be an unfriendly place. At his birth, no warmer welcome than a cowshed. During his ministry, in the text, just preceding the text I've chosen for the day, Jesus is in Gadara, across from Galilee, across the lake. And he comes and is met by a guy who has no clothes and is flat out crazy. A man who has so much strength that while they had chained him, he broke the chains. And now he's living in a cemetery. And he comes rushing out and Jesus healed the man you may remember the story, the demons that possessed this man said, you know, don't do this, don't do this. Let us go in those pigs. And so Jesus gave the demons permission to go into the pigs if you'd leave the man. And they went in the pigs, and the pigs ran off the cliff and drowned. And the Gadarenes who were keeping the pigs, by the way, what were they doing keeping pigs? They were Jewish. But they insisted that Jesus get out of town. They wanted nothing to do with him because they found their economic realities to be challenged by Jesus' ministry. In his hometown, when he preached there, they rejected him with such vigor that they took him to the cliff on the edge of Nazareth and went to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through them. The unhappy reality is that Jesus was just not wanted. His words, his actions, even his presence had a way of making people uncomfortable. Uncomfortable with their words or with their actions or with themselves. I I have picked up just a clue of what that was like during my 50 years in ministry. I love to play golf. I haven't played for a long time because of my wife has had some health problems. But when I'd get on a golf course, if I did not have a foursome that I was with, the starter would say, can I just put you with those guys? Oh, yeah, sure, I don't care. So we'd get on about the fourth or fifth hole, and somebody every time says, well, bud, what in the you do for a living. (laughs) And I would wait until the guy who was leading the match was putting. (laughs) And then I'd say, I am a minister. And it put right into the sand trap. (laughs) Poor ethics, but good for my golf score. (laughs) Why do people react that way? I can kill a conversation by walking into a room. They're talking away like mad, and I walk in, shh, the pastor. Why is that? Something about a pastor in people's minds is a harsh, judgmental figure, or one that would perhaps judge the content of their conversations or the actions of their character. That's just a tiny hint 
of what it must have been for Jesus. He finds entire towns rejecting him, his hometown rejecting him. And on the occasion of our morning's text, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. I want to stop there. Jesus, in our text, is tired. He's tired of the disciples constantly bickering over who's going to be number one. Just in front of them. They've come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and what happens once they get down from the Mount of Transfiguration? The young fellow is healed that's at the bottom of the mountain. But then the disciples start picking again. Who's going to be number one? Who's going to be number one? We're familiar with that. Every time we see a basketball game or a football game, you know, they're always running around like that, and it's not all glory to God. It's we're number one. And Jesus is tired of that with his disciples. They haven't learned anything, it would appear. He's tired of being rejected in so many places. He's tired with the stress upon his spirit. He's physically tired from his works of compassion and healing. And he is wearied by the gathering dark clouds of opposition. He knows what's ahead of him in Jerusalem. Now, it wouldn't have been bad if he were a cold man. But Jesus was warm with love, sensitive rejection. So he sends a couple of his disciples into the Samaritan village to get accommodations at the local B&B, and they won't accept them. Now, John and James' reaction, the sons of thunder, Boagernes, is, Lord, let's nuke them. If they reject you, we want to really fix them for that. But Jesus won't allow that. But why was it that at the beginning of life and now near the end of his life, there is constantly no room in the inn? Why were doors closed to him? Why are doors of people's lives closed to Christ today? The text only says that he was rejected by the entire village, verse 53, because he was headed for Jerusalem. He had told his disciples earlier in verse 44 that he was, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They didn't understand that. And the scripture says they were afraid to ask what it meant. But now Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and the city is where he would meet his death, and he knew it. We need to keep in mind that the cross was not something that Jesus just stumbled into. 
He knew what was waiting. That's why in verse 51 it says, Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. Repeatedly he spoke about his coming death, how he would die, that it would come as a result of betrayal. They didn't understand. Now this is the second Sunday of Lent. Liturgical churches pay a great deal of attention to that, and non-liturgical churches, I think, miss out on something when they lose sight of some of the events of the church calendar. The second Sunday of Lent, a time set aside to deal with truth. The truth that when Christ was certain that the cross of suffering was the only way, that it was the Father's way, he willingly stretched himself on the wood. All of this reality and the knowledge of what he was going to experience, I think was probably reflected in the Savior's face when he came to this Samaritan village. And the villagers saw it, and they realized he's not going to settle down here and be one of us. He is going on to Jerusalem. It was a custom of parties back in those days to send some of the traveling party ahead to make reservations in the local B&B. But it was not the custom for Jews to try to stay in a Samaritan village. That was really unheard of. Most Jews would not even walk on Samaritan soil. If you've looked at the map of Israel, you know that Christ is in Galilee up north. He's going to Jerusalem, which is down south, and the most direct route is right through Samaria. But a good Orthodox Jew went on the other side of the Jordan and went down the west bank, excuse me, the east bank of the Jordan, and then crossed over again by Jericho and came up into Jerusalem. But Jesus walked right through Samaria. Prejudice and bigotry between Jews and Samaritans dated all the way back to the 700 years before Christ. Sargon, who was the king of Assyria, had sacked the northern kingdom. He had carried off the brightest and the best so that the conquered land would not rebel. He took the leaders, hauled them off to Assyria, and there he left behind the Jews, some of the Jews that were not leaders, that were not movers and shakers, just the common, ordinary people. He didn't take them all to Assyria. But he sent Assyrians down there to settle the land to make sure that this land would stay under the control of Assyria. And when these Assyrians came down there, they found some Jews living there, and they intermarried eventually. And that became a kind of, in the eyes of the Jews, a mongrel race, mixed race, the Samaritans. They even developed a mixed religion, and the Jews despised them. In Jesus' day, to call a Samaritan was a dirty insult. It was a dirty word. It meant devil. It meant bastard. It meant dog. Even the Jewish laws demonstrated this. If a Samaritan wanted to sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, the, Jew, the Samaritan had to come on the same standard and with the same behavior that a slave or a heathen came to the temple. 
the simple fact that a witness on a legal document, a witness was a Samaritan, invalidated the legality of that document. Now today, to be called a Samaritan is a high compliment. Jesus changed the word from an insult to a compliment with the story that we call the story of the Good Samaritan. He took the word from the gutter and he made it a word of praise. And it's this Jesus who says, I want to stay here. And it's this Jesus that the Samaritan said, no way, no room. Because he would not stay there and be one of them, but he would not allow them to keep him at their level. I am impressed with the fact that the Lord always comes to people where they are. You look at the variety of people that Jesus called to follow him then and now. He comes to Simon, the foul-mouthed fisherman at his job and at his nets, who was so changed when he began to follow Christ that he even cleaned up his language. And if anybody has been a habitual swearer, that's not an easy thing to do. It just keeps popping out at the wrong time. You smash your thumb and you don't say, thank you, Jesus. You don't. You just don't. Peter got rid of that language until, you remember the night that Jesus was betrayed and tried and the little girl said, oh, you were one of them? He found that language again. (laughs) He found that language again. But Jesus came to Peter right where he was, a foul-mouthed, hard-working fisherman at his nets. He comes to Matthew, despised by the Jews. My goodness, he was a traitor to his own people because as a tax collector, he could collect whatever he wanted to collect or could collect because Rome said, this is how much you have to collect. Anything above that, he got to keep. And he was despised. Matthew, the traitor and the tax collector, Jesus came to his tax office. Nathaniel, a scholar, an intellect, a student, at his studies under a tree, Jesus calls him. Jesus comes today to the ignorant and to the brilliant. He comes to the people who imagine themselves to be superior and to the people who imagine themselves to be inferior. He comes to all of us right where we are. (laughs) I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I already shared it with my friend here. A few years ago, I was invited to preach in my hometown church, small town Nebraska. The first night of the meetings in the second row sat Mr. Peterson, who was the principal of my high school when I graduated from that high school, and Mr. Sinovic, who was my biology teacher, and two of my high school girlfriends. Now, that was tough to preach. I said to them afterwards, how did it happen that you, you came? Mr. Peterson, the principal, was probably 89, 90 years old, something like that, long since retired. I'd shared an office with him for four years. And uh, Mr. Sinovic was a Catholic. And I said, Mr. Sinovic, have you ever been in a Protestant church before? He said, well, I, I was to a funeral once. 
but never this kind of a meeting. Mr. Peterson, you're from the Federated Church. Why, what are you doing here? And he said, well, Elmer, Sinovic, Elmer and I were sitting together in the SYA Cafe having coffee, and we saw on the front page of the newspaper a big picture of you and a big article about the Skid Road ministry called Operation Nightwatch that you run in Seattle. And then it, down at the bottom it said that you were going to be preaching here for a week. And Elmer and I looked at each other, and Elmer's priest and my pastor have often spoken about miracles. We thought we'd come and see one. And so I am so grateful to God's grace, which comes to us as we are. But he won't let us stay there. He is on his way to build the kingdom of God, and he wants us to build it with him. He has plans for us, and some of those plans mean change for us. And sometimes it's a dramatic change. Remember Saul, who became Paul? Remember Bud, who became Pastor Bud? People say to me, do you really believe the Bible? I mean, do you believe Jesus walked on the water and that Jonah got swallowed by a whale? Even though Jonah didn't get swallowed by a whale, he got swallowed by a big fish. Custom job. But yeah, I believe that. Well, how can you believe that? You're an educated person. I said, I believe it because every so often I shave Bud Pombry. And that's something that makes walking on the water seem like nothing. Many will not go with Christ. Even though they like him, they're attracted to him, but they won't go with him because they sense the implications for their life if they do follow him comes to the person who is living for possessions, for power and for the comfort it can give. And he wants to be the center of that moneyed life. He wants to set the person free from the tyranny and bondage that possessions and greed can bring. He wants to teach that person to be hilarious in generosity. But that door is often shut comes to another person whose lifestyle is questionable. Maybe it's the morality that is doubtful or the motive that is impure or the attitude and he seeks admission but the door is shut because that person says, if I follow him, my life has to change. He comes to another whose lifestyle is questionable and he comes to our homes and he wants to bring our homes to fulfill its promise And he doesn't choose to be on my side or my wife's side, either one. He wants me to become the man that he wants me to be, that we know I can be. But many people prefer to keep their resentments and their ego focused, but he comes to each one of us. And frankly, folks, we know what that means for us. We know what that means regarding our professions, our personal goals, our lifestyles, our possessions, our power, and frankly, that's not necessarily what we might want. 
He wants us to live for the highest and the best rather than for pleasure or for profit. He wants us to love and serve each other rather than to use others and get them to serve us. He does not want our applause or our admiration or our ambition or our assets. He wants us to be his disciples, to be his followers. But then we remember that he made this statement. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And frankly, that has very little appeal. Jesus does not come to our lives to be our honored guest. He comes to be our Savior and our Lord. He comes to be our guide because he's going someplace, and he wants us along. Now, Lent is a time of preparation. It's a time set aside to really focus on Christ's purpose and our relationship to him and to that purpose. Some people, what are you going to give up for Lent? You heard that. What are you giving up? And they give up something really significant like chocolates. Oh, God must be pleased. <laughs> I had a young girl when I was a waiter in a, in a hotel during my university years. The girl asked me what I was going to give up. I said, for what? She said, for Lent. I couldn't have cared less about, you know, who cares about that. I said, why? What are you going to give up? She said, I think I'll give up sex. That sounded really religious. Lent is not a time to give up something like that as we somehow gain virtue by giving that up. It's a time to set our stumbling feet on a firm path, to, to check the spiritual compass of our lives, to ask ourselves some rather pointed questions. So on this second Sunday of Lent, we're going to celebrate in a few moments Holy Communion. I invite you now to close your eyes and think about these questions that you need to ask yourself as I need to ask myself before we take by God's grace communion. Am I a disciple or a devotee? Honestly now, are there reservations in my dedication? areas in my life that are kind of locked off. I prefer not to examine them in the light of my professed faith. Am I growing in Christ? Am I more effective? Where I work, do they see and know I'm a follower of Jesus? I mean, do they see it? Is there a growing body of supporting evidence? Are others 
likely to be drawn toward him because of knowing me or working with me? Is my home warm with his love in every way that I can make it? Am I having fun being generous? Do our neighbors know we are Christians by our love? Lord Jesus, you come to us right where we are. We are not accomplished or complete. And we remember that you are not staying as a guest. You're on your way to build the kingdom and you want us along. Quite honestly, that can be unsettling. It can even be scary sometimes. We think of the daily news reports of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are literally laying down their lives losing their heads because of their faith. No turning back. Your call includes a gift to all who follow you of both an abundant and an eternal life. But Lord, we need to remember that you say that if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain a whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Lord, it's so easy to lose the compass of our lives in our world, which is so competitive and consumer-oriented. Help us, O Lord, to be followers of Jesus.